What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Welcome back to The Peripheral. It's been a long month of trying to get these episodes out, so I have two that are almost ready to go. Funny enough, I'm sitting in a parking lot in my car recording this intro, so that gives you any insight into the way my life's going. Somewhere between traveling and having to tear down my entire home office so they could do drywall and electrical work, it's good times. On this week's episode, I speak to a very special guest. By the way, everyone that comes on my show is special and awesome. Uh, But when I was up in Philly doing the podcast movement, I met Josh, who had a very unique story to tell. It does deal with sexual assault and rape. So just a heads up. An interesting thing has happened in the last few months where I've received a lot of messages from men who have suffered from abuse and sexual assault. I don't want to put out episode after episode on this topic, so I'm going to do my best to mix it up with other topics. Also a very special listener named Kathy She asked if I was ever going to do a happy episode, and I think that a lot of my guests have stories that have happy endings, but I do think I have something on the horizon that is going to be a little bit more uplifting, but in my own peripheral kind of way. So let me get around to introducing Josh and letting you guys hear his story. Introduce yourself and your podcast, <laughs> and then, okay. and then yeah, told the story. I know it's not related to your story, but you know, it's it's like a free plug, right? <laughs> yeah, and and I actually did an episode oh, okay. that kind of touched on this, so it'll be okay. a nice little companion. Yeah, like a follow up uh, reference to. <laughs> okay, and usually when I do this, I spend the day like trying to really just take myself back to that dark, dark place. And yeah. today I was like, I'm not going to do that. So it, uh, we'll see what happens. It should be interesting. <laughs> yeah, and I actually prefer it when people sort of laugh through their catastrophes and tragedies because it shows how far you've come since then. Perfect. Yeah, that's kind of my thing is laugh through the trauma. (laughs) Exactly. We're not laughing, we're crying. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Hi, I am Josh Hallmark. I host the Our Americana podcast as well as the Karen and Ellen Letters podcast. And what are those about? So Our Americana is uh, kind of my therapy for dealing with the state that America has been in the past couple of years. Each episode, I go to a different small town in America where a unique event or circumstance has either impacted or cultivated community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's just really, really interesting, fascinating stories. You know, in uh, one, we have a little six-year-old girl uh, was transitioning to her authentic self. 
the school in this rural Wisconsin town was on board and they wanted to help the students adjust and acclimate as best they could. So they decided to read a book about a transgender child and an outside hate group came in and threatened to sue the school and shut it down. And so some woman who did not know anyone involved decided she wanted to support this girl's family by hosting a reading at the public library. And uh, just in this small act of kindness, insanity happened. And then this little rural town in Wisconsin became the center of this huge transgender debate. And it really changed the landscape of that town and its community afterwards. Uh, so, so stories like that, um, you know, I take on different topics and I try to keep them relevant with things that are happening in the media today. But it, it, I always describe it as talking about politics in a non-political way, mm-hmm. really just try to bring out the humanity in these issues as opposed to the politics behind them. Yeah. And what's the other one about? The other one is it's a stack of correspondence I was gifted for my 24th birthday. And it is three years worth of handwritten letters between a landlord and two of his tenants who, for lack of a better way of describing them, are egregious and egregiously stupid. (laughs) And just the letters become so insane over the course of, I think there's probably about 150 of them, Mm -hmm. uh, where you start to think these can't be real. Uh, So the podcast is... I have actors reading the letters and playing these parts while I narrate my journey to authenticate them. Mm-hmm. And it, it's hilarious. Um, and it's, it's a strange comedic mystery. That sounds awesome. I can't wait to listen to that one because I hadn't uh, given that one a, a try yet. I have only listened to our Americana, so I apologize. <laughs> no, it's okay. I, I, it's hard to listen to podcasts when you're producing podcasts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know. So today you're going to tell a, a personal story that's semi-unrelated to your podcast, right? Yeah. You know, I think I was actually, I've been drawing a lot of comparisons to it today, and I, I think we'll touch on it towards the end. But really, I think empathy is transcendent. And I, I think that's really the whole point of what I have learned from the story I'm going to share. So I guess that's a great way to tease it. Okay. How long ago was this? Where were you at? And I guess, how did it start? Yeah, so it was November 15th, 2006. Uh, and the only reason I remember the date, because it feels very macabre to kind of like have this date imprinted on me, is it was one of my good friend's 30th birthdays. Mm-hmm. I was in Portland, Oregon. Uh, I had just moved there. I didn't know anyone in town, and I'd made just a few like friends through mutual friends. I had moved there because I had gotten out of a relationship and just needed to start my life over again. Mm-hmm. I was 25, and I feel like that's a very 25-year-old thing to do. Uh, (laughs) Quarter-life crisis. (laughs) Exactly. I'm going to run away from my problems, but declare it not abandonment, but starting new. That is what I was doing, and I I came upon a whole new batch of problems. I had made uh, two friends who I, I guess were two young gay guys who were in like a strange relationship with each other that uh, was very tenable at best. One night, one of them called me up and he was clearly intoxicated and was just a mess. And he said, you know, I'm so sad. I don't think our relationship's going to work out. And can I just come talk to you? And I, of course, having just been through a pretty rough breakup, was like, yeah, come on over. You're you're both in the same place. You're both in the same mindset and you want to Exactly. And, you know, I, I didn't have any friends at the time, so it was selflessly it was like yes let me be here for you and selfishly it was like i'm going to 
broaden or deepen the connection I have with this person and make a good friend and we both can work through our breakups together. So I had a bottle of wine and I figured that uh, I would pop that open because I was obviously a few glasses behind. Mm -hmm. And so he came over and we drank wine and just talked about it. And it was very lovely. It was a really lovely night and a really lovely conversation. Then I was ready to go to bed and he said, you know, I'm way too drunk to be driving. And I agreed. And at the time, I was living in a two-bedroom with a roommate. She was not there. I didn't know her that well. I didn't feel right putting a strange man in her bed. So I said, just come sleep in the bed with me. Sleep off the drunk, and I'll send you on your way tomorrow. And you're thinking this is pretty almost platonic. Just, hey, I'm doing you a favor. You're drunk. I'm drunk. We're just going to go to sleep. Exactly. We had spent the whole night talking about how we were madly in love with these two other people. And it just seemed like an innocuous thing that, you know, your friend's too drunk. So you make them sleep at your house because you don't want them to get killed or kill someone. Mm -hmm. That seemed fine. And we got into bed. And the next thing I know, he literally like I just this is the thing looking back. I can make sense of everything else that happened. But I, that still just shocks me is it was aggressive from the get go. Uh, there wasn't a he didn't put the moves on me. He just got on top of me and pinned me down and started taking off his clothes. And, you know, I'm a pretty small guy. I'm five, six at the time. I was probably like 100 pounds soaking wet mm -hmm. and I couldn't fight him off. And he just when I tried to push him off, he punched me in the face. I was stunned um you know you don't think you're ever going to find yourself in that situation and so you don't really know how to react to it or you think like if i'm ever in that situation i'm going to do this or i'm going to do this but when it's happening to you you're just shocked that it's happening to you yeah and we, we all think i'm so tough and no one would ever take advantage of me but it's a whole other deal when it happens. And, and right. I, it, and and when, it's so easy to say that. It's so e And I think that now with other things like, oh, if I ever got mugged, I'm going to do this. But probably if I ever get mugged, I'm just going to get mugged. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, but but when he punches you, you know that this isn't a, oh, he got the wrong impression. He thought maybe that I invited him. Into, you no, know, this is he is attacking you. Yeah, it was very clear. And I don't know, maybe it was shock or, or hubris, but I never felt like it was going to be anything more than a sexual assault. Um, and so I kind of felt like, all right, I know the ground rules here. I know if I fight back, he's going to hit me. So I can either just get the crap kicked out of me or I can submit. And submitting is not consenting no <laughs> no and you know i know that now 12 years later um but at the time it it almost felt like by submitting and taking the easy route uh that i was acquiescing or or giving up or giving him carte blanche to do whatever he wanted and that was a really hard guilt for me to get over but i mean without going deep into details uh, he did hit me a few more times and raped me. And then the worst part of it is that then he proceeded to spend the night. And I had no idea what to do. And that just, to me, showed a level of disgusting entitlement 
that he felt that he was safe in doing that and then sticking around. And I just laid in the bed next to him as he slept. And then in the morning, he quietly got up, put on his clothes and left. You know, whenever we talk about true crime or we always think, well, why would somebody do that? We always try to get into the head of people's motivations. Why, what on earth would possess this guy to spend the night? It seems so out of the ordinary. It does. And I don't, I still to this day don't know. And I, at a certain point I gave up trying to figure out why, because it didn't really change what happened. It didn't do me any good. It wasn't going to help me heal. Um, you know, I, I could think that it was to show that he had a level of control or that he didn't seem to think there was a problem with his behavior and what he did. I, I don't know, but when these things happen to you and I, I think it's human nature to try to figure out why certain things happen and you will torture yourself because you will never know, you know? You're never going to know why someone did something bad to you. No. So at a certain point, you just have to accept that they did something bad to you and you don't own and are not responsible for the why. So the why doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. No, I very much appreciate how you put that. I don't think I could have put it in better words. We always are trying to apply logic when we're victimized and there is no logic. It's that's a bad person and you just cross paths with the wrong person and you have to move on and just survive. Yeah. And that's not to say that it's not important, you know, because in a lot of these cases, mental health has a lot to do with it or drug or alcohol abuse. And, you know, there are reasons why that are important, but as a victim, they are not your responsibility. No. Do you think that he was blacked out or do you think he was totally conscious during this and was very much aware of his actions? I, that's a good question. And I don't, I don't think I've ever really considered it. I, I will say that I never heard from him again after that. So there was some level of awareness Mm -hmm. the following day of what he had done. What were your actions or how did you respond the following days? Oh, they were really rough. I had so much shame because again, like we were saying, you always have this, this thing in your head where if this ever happens, I'm going to do this. Or when other people tell you that something happened, you're like, oh, they should have done this. And, and so I beat myself up for a very long time about all the things I should have done and did not do. And maybe if I had done those, this wouldn't have happened. And that can go deep. Uh, I should not have made friends with the first person I met. I should not have invited this person over. I should not have had a glass of wine or two or however many I had. I should not have let him have wine. I should not have let him spend the night. I should not have let him sleep in the bed. Like it just, you can, I should not have until you're blue in the face. And, and again, that's not going to change the result. Yeah. I, I just know when, when I, uh, was, I don't know, early twenties, something like that, about your same age, and I went to a bar for a date and my date didn't show up. I'm feeling kind of lonely. And then a group of girls at a table invites me over to drink with them. And they were high school acquaintances, but you know, that's eight years earlier. And I go back to their apartment and I proceed to drink myself into oblivion. And 
wake up with one of them on top of me, I blamed all my own actions. It was all my fault. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have gone there by myself. I shouldn't have drank. I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have done that. But at the end of the day, they shouldn't be on top of you. (laughs) You Yeah. And that's really interesting. And, uh, I think that's been the most valuable lesson I've gotten from this is, and you know, I'm, I'm gay. So it's a little bit different because I think that, uh, gay men are not allowed to have the same level of masculinity as straight men by Mm -hmm. culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, but as men, we can be victims. And I think because up until very recently, it was considered taboo for a man to have been a victim of sexual assault. It's not something we talked about. Men always want it. That in situations like ours, you feel responsible and you feel like, oh, it wasn't that big of a deal because I'm a man. And no one's going to take me seriously because I'm a man. Exactly. They're going to laugh at me. Like I can't imagine even today. Uh, a straight guy saying a woman sexually assaulted me uh, and and most people responding in a way that's appropriate. Yeah. I mean, because most, most guys would say, dude, you got to go home with three girls from a bar. What are you complaining about? Well, exactly. I, I wasn't planning on being in that situation. You know, what was I planning? I don't know, but it wasn't that. <laughs> so, Well, and like, regardless of your sexual preference or gender like you should be the only one who has agency over your body anything else is just static you know yeah i'm assuming you didn't report this i did not and it's something i was thinking about before we got on the call uh i didn't report it because i was so ashamed and more than that i didn't have it in me to deal with that you know, like you've just gone through a really traumatic event. And the last thing you want to do is sit in a police station for hours and have your character impeached and have to tell this to people who don't really care and definitely don't understand or empathize and then have to eventually face your attacker again. And that is a lot to take in after you've just been raped. And, um, and in your case, your attacker is friends of friends. Exactly. <laughs> and and that even wasn't that even never came to mind. Um but I didn't and I was thinking before we got on the call like do I regret that? The answer is no. I don't regret reporting him which is ultimately selfish because he could do this again if he could have already done it again. But I think the bigger issue is that it's a huge problem in our criminal justice system that there are statutes of limitations on crimes like this. Yeah. Be- because no one should be expected to go through the worst thing that hopefully will ever happen to them and then ha- have to immediately go deal with the police. And this happened 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And I have only very recently gotten to a place where I feel healthy and as healed as anyone ever could be. Yeah. And now it's too late. So I, I think that we can't, especially with violent crimes and sex crimes, say, okay, you only have 10 years uh, and then your time's up. Yeah. I I have mixed feelings on the statutes because I think, well, how on earth do you investigate a crime from 10 years earlier and get any resolve, get any kind of evidence? It's almost impossible. But at the same time, 
how much would it hurt to go question somebody that's accused of a sexual assault? Who knows? Maybe they might just turn around and confess and say, yeah, I did that. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I think I never, now I probably have considered how challenging it would be to prove all this time later. I, I just think it's one of those, there needs to be a better way, and I don't know what that way is. Um, and obviously, at a certain point, even victims need to not take responsibility, but take control of the situation they're in. And I could have done that. I could have just said, okay, this sucks, but I'm going to deal with it. I don't, I don't know what the right answer is, even all these years later. Well, there isn't a right answer. It's, it's different for everybody. It's how you deal with it, what's going to give you closure or allow you to heal, move on, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, that was, it was tough. And then, you know, I dealt with it in all the wrong ways. And I, uh, I'm happy now to admit that there is no right way to handle that. Uh, I think you, you do whatever you need to do to survive, uh, to not go crazy, to not kill yourself, to not be just ridiculously depressed. You do whatever you need to do to get through it. Not, to, uh, not to self-destruct. Yeah. Exactly. And then you can worry about doing the right things later. But um, I started drinking. I, I went through a phase where I could not even look at myself naked. I would cry every time I got in the shower. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I got over that and just was reckless sexually. Um, I was sleeping with anyone and everyone and drinking a lot and getting blackout drunk almost on a weekly basis, sometimes more than that, for years. And that did a lot of damage too. But again, if that's what it took for me to survive this trauma, I'm I'm okay with it now. And then, oh gosh, like almost a year to the date later, I got pneumonia, mm-hmm. uh, which is a strange thing to get as a healthy 26-year-old. Mm-hmm. And I knew right away what that meant. And so I got tested and sure enough, I was HIV positive. And I can say you can never be 100% certain, but I'm 99.9% certain uh, that is how I got it because I had never had unprotected sex mm-hmm. before that. Yeah. Did you reach out to any of your partners, anybody you'd been with in the last few months once you found out about that? I did. And that was tough because then you're you're forced to kind of relive this whole bad experience that you've spent oh yeah the last year trying to forget uh and trying to avoid then it's like does it even matter you know as i'm telling all these people that i may have exposed them to hiv uh does it matter how i got it does it matter that this is the case and it does but to them in that moment it doesn't uh and so that was tough to have to have these conversations with a bunch of people (laughs) and kind of have to relive it through every conversation uh it was heartbreaking and it it, i think it made things even worse for me because then i felt responsible uh, for these other people's safety in the same way that he had been responsible for mine so that was a hard time because i was already kind of at the lowest of lows i was really depressed i was drinking nonstop. And then I had to have these conversations, which made me feel like a monster. And again, I had no idea. And 
all these years later am fine with it. But uh, at the time, it was really tough. I understand how HIV spreads, but do you want to give a quick rundown that it's not just like you have sex and everyone you've had sex with is infected? It's not quite that easy? Yeah, it's actually, and I don't want to play fast and loose with this, but it is a pretty hard disease to get. It It is transmitted sexually uh, through intercourse. There are not any confirmed cases of it being transferred orally. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't mean, and you know, doctors will say this all the time, like no one wants to equivocally say that it can't happen. So it could, there's just no reported cases of it happening. Uh, so it's for gay men, it's through anal intercourse. Uh, and yeah, I think if you are topping, uh, which I don't think we need to deep dive too far. I look it up if you don't know what that means. Don't Google image it. Uh, (laughs) If you are topping and with someone who is HIV positive and you are not, I think the transmission rate is like 15%. I don't know. Uh, While you're looking up topping, look up that too. (laughs) But it's significantly lower than if you are bottoming with someone who is HIV positive. Uh, Again, I was using condoms, so I... I was pretty confident that I hadn't transmitted it. It's also the longer you have it before you start taking meds, the more potent it becomes. So uh, you actually, I'm fairly certain the first like three to six months that you, after you've been infected, the transmission rate is very low. But again, I had been using condoms and having safe sex. It was just more about the like, this is the right thing to do. And I don't want to take any chances with anyone else's lives. So even after that, even when you are saying that you were living a reckless life, you were using protection and you were being smart and you did protect other people. Yeah, yeah. I think I was being emotionally reckless. Um, True, true. Not physically. Yeah. But still, I mean, you could have just gone off the deep end and not use protection just because you hated yourself. You hated everything. You were in a bad, dark place. So but you still had enough sense to protect others. And that says a lot. It says a lot about you. It says a lot about you and your personality and that you're a good person. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) That's what I was trying to say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's, it's, I guess for me, it's, it's never been something that I, that you would not do. Uh, You know, I just think it's an easy an easy way to save yourself a life of turmoil is just to put a condom on. Yeah. <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> <laughs> is there any other things that have happened since then or uh, events that have changed you since then or given you more of an epiphany or better handle? Yeah. On? It kind of lived deep, deeply inside me for a very long time. I didn't talk about it. And every time I had to have the conversation, you know, if I was dating someone and it was like, all right, it's time to tell you this because we're going to have sex or whatever. um, Then I would be like, I needed to validate why I had it, which was like, I don't want anyone to think that I was this stupid person not using condoms or. uh, But then at the same time, like telling people that makes you feel so weak, like, oh, I got raped. And if I can say it now with ease but back then it there's all these stigmas that come with that like what does that say about me by telling you this that i'm weak or i'm vulnerable or 
you've been victimized. You know, that's, yeah. I mean, anyone can be victimized. So it shouldn't say anything about you. Yet we know that when you have been victimized, somehow, some way, our society looks at you as damaged goods or something to that effect. When yeah. That- and then there's this other thing that I, it's been coming up a lot lately, you know, during the Me Too movement, which is that people don't believe you sometimes. And that I've spent a lot of time with just trying to figure out why that is. Because I I will admit I have been guilty of it. I have met people who, for whatever reason, shared their stories with me. And my immediate instinct was that they were exaggerating. (laughs) Uh, And so I really looked inward and was like, why... Why do I feel that way? And I realized what the answer is, which is both really dark, but also really liberating. Because I, th- I think when we don't believe people are skeptical about people, we do kind of take that on. What does this say about me that I don't believe you? And the conclusion I came to is it's easier not to believe someone than to believe that we live in a world where that many people can be victims of sexual assault. I think almost... Every single female I know has a story, and I'm slowly hearing stories from a lot of the males I know. Yeah, it's, it's an epidemic, and I'm glad it's one we are finally starting to have real conversations about. It feels a little late, <laughs> but... Yeah. <laughs> um, and that was kind of where I finally got was the more I shared my story, the more emancipated I felt. And the more I talked about it, the safer other people felt. There's this quote that I love, uh, which is, articulate your suffering in a way that emancipates you and empowers others. That is what I found, that the more I shared my story, the more I was empowering other people to share their stories. And, And the more that people share these stories, the more you realize that it is common And so that makes you feel like less of a freak or less alone in the world um, or less afraid to be a victim. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And I had never shared my stories until I started this podcast. And now I speak very openly of them because it seems appropriate. (laughs) You know, it's it seems like the place. Yeah. And I think what you've done and what everyone who's who's brave enough to share their stories is doing and. I don't like the word normalize because we should never normalize rape, but it normalizes the experience of victims or, or anyone who feels marginalized is it it normalizes feeling alone in the world. Yeah. Um, And I think through that, you feel less alone in the world. Absolutely. No, that's every day I get emails from people. Just, I thought I was the only one. And, uh, I guess that's why I keep doing this. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like I, I the best way I can describe it is I remember, gosh, I must have been like 30 and a, we were at happy hour at a bar after work with a bunch of coworkers and we were all probably three or four drinks in. So we were being a little more candid and someone had said, well, I mean, we all pick our noses. And, and we all kind of laughed at her. And she goes, no, we, we do. She was like, and sometimes I just flick my boogers across the room. And, and it was this moment for me where I was like, oh, my God. Like, it's okay. It is okay. Like, we all do these stupid things that we feel so embarrassed by. Whether it's like, 
masturbating or singing in the shower or picking your nose and flicking your boogers across the room. Like, yeah. And we spend so much of our lives like being ashamed of it or trying to hide it or feeling guilty about it. And it's just like, no, we all do it. So we should all talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I talk about bowel movements with my wife all the time. <laughs> it's just what happens. <laughs> exactly. Like, let, let's just like stop pretending these things that are very human are inhuman. <laughs> you know, I, I don't, uh, I don't probably share those details on somebody when on the first meeting or two, but you know, if, if the conversation goes there, I usually don't shy away. <laughs> you mean you're not like, Hey, I'm Justin and you should have seen the poop I had today. <laughs> <laughs> Put it out on ratemypoo.com. <laughs> uh, so yeah, but I just think like, like for me, you know, and it's easy to kind of like summarize healing. Um, but I, I think there were some steps. And the first was I, for a long time, had HIV that was going untreated because the idea that I was going to have to take a pill every day for the rest of my life and that was going to be a reminder of what this person did to me was unbearable. Uh and so I put off taking meds for as long as humanly possible uh, until eventually, um, you know, I was in a relationship, still am, wonderful human being. I was like, we need to tackle this. Uh, and I told him that and he said, okay, so do you want to be reminded of what happened to you every day when you take a pill or do you want to be reminded of what happened to you when you're in the hospital dying of AIDS? And that was a level of control I could not give my attacker. Uh, so I am happy to give him 20 seconds of my day every day. And at this point, it, they're not even his anymore. It's, it's empowering to, to be present and taking care of myself in spite of what he did. Because in a sense, that makes me feel like he didn't win. You might have pretty much already answered this with your last statement, but what kind of life is it living with HIV? It's so much easier than you think it's going to be. I mean, it is easy in that I pretty much live the same life as everyone else as long as I'm taking my meds. I don't really have any physical symptoms of it. I don't really experience anything. I'm in a relationship, so I don't have to have those yucky conversations with people anymore. For the most part, there are no reminders except when I take that pill every day. However, HIV meds cost uninsured about $5,000 a month. Oh, uh, my gosh. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. More than most people make in a year. You could be making six figures and still not afford to survive having HIV if you didn't have insurance, mm-hmm. which is why uh, global health care is very important. Um, and for a while, I because of just life events, I wasn't insured and that was terrifying. And I remember calling this company that is a billion dollar industry and telling them like, I don't have insurance. I don't have an income. I cannot afford your meds. I also would prefer not to die. Um, What can we do? And they said, Oh, don't worry. We have a charity program. Uh, You just need to fill out this paperwork and we can get you a 20% discount. <laughs> 20, 20%. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so you get that no income means I can't pay $3,000 a month either, right? 
uh, and they were like, oh, I don't think there's anything we can do for you. And I was traveling at the time, so I couldn't really get on Medicaid. And again, in most states, I couldn't anyway, because uh, I had been employed earlier that year. So I had had an in- annual income that was above the poverty line. Uh, and so luckily, I was off meds for about six weeks. And we ended up in New York, and I got on Medicaid right away. But So when I say that it's an easy life to live, physically it is, but when you have HIV, you can't afford to be uninsured. So that means you need to have a job or you need to have money in the bank so you can pay crazy premiums for medical insurance. Like you cannot go without insurance unless you are a multimillionaire. Otherwise you die. Otherwise you die. That's quite a bit of pressure (laughs) to have. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it doesn't, you don't get AIDS overnight, but no, and I, I don't even have the figures, um, but I know HIV can turn to AIDS faster than you think it can. And um, it's hard to get insurance. Uh, like, even for me, getting on Medicaid was a terrible situation. It took, I think, 11 days of, like, basically full-time work, like, faxing stuff over and finding the right people and getting someone on the line because there are millions of people who are uninsured who are trying to get insurance every day as well. It's a nightmare. And then there's those pesky pre-existing conditions. (laughs) Of which HIV is one. (laughs) Yeah. So it just, it's a mess. And I think that uh, it's a shame for these states that don't have Medicaid or Medicaid expansion or have Medicaid with just uh, uh, hoops that you have to jump through in order to get it. It's easy to have opinions about universal health care when you don't have any major health problems that are going to cost you more than you will probably ever make in your lifetime. Uh, So I think empathy is really important. And that was my biggest lesson from all this. Um, It's that you have to go all the way in before you can get out. Mm -hmm. I got so depressed that I became a little self-obsessed. And just was throwing myself daily pity parties. And that kind of hit a fever pitch. And I experienced some some great generosity and ended up being in Cambodia and just seeing poverty in a way I'd never seen it, uh, but also grace in a way that I had never seen it. Mm -hmm. And I realized that my problems are still my problems um, and they are a part of who I am and I get to grieve them but they are also relatively small. So I think when you experience a trauma, um, once you get through the grief of it, you have to acknowledge the privilege of the perspective that it gives you. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that I had not done that. And when I went to Cambodia and saw life in a different way and saw um, how the world impacted me versus others, I, I got a swift kick in the ass yeah, And that's what I took back with me was empathy and mm-hmm. seeing other people's circumstances and knowing that all, all we take out into the world with us are our own experiences. So the worst thing that ever happened to you is still the worst thing that ever happened to you. And it doesn't matter if it's trivial compared to the worst thing that's happened to someone else. Yeah. It, it humbles you to see how somebody lives in Cambodia. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's a real eye-opener, I think. Um, it's, it's an eye-opener to me because when we met in person in Philadelphia, we talked, we met. I would have never guessed you had this story. 
I never would have even fathomed that you had HIV, that you'd been through all of this. And it just shows how strong of a person you are and how much you've, you've progressed since then. Yeah, and I think that's the, the great thing. Thank you. Um, and it is. I, I live a pretty normal life now. I, I think it's important to say that you're never fully healed from traumas. Like, they're always going to be a part of you, and they will resurface in strange ways. But I, I think I am as healed as I am going to be, and I get to live a normal life, and I get this power of perspective. Um, but I think that's a great lesson, right? Yeah. If something so terrible can happen to you, that you can get raped and then find out you're HIV positive from this rape, um, and then you can get to live a normal life and laugh at trauma, your own trauma, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and learn and be a better person because of it, like that's powerful stuff. And that means that whatever anyone is experiencing right now, it feels endless and it feels oppressive and it feels like your life will never be the same again and in some ways it won't but in most ways it will and you will get through it and you will be a stronger better person because of it it's it's a damn superpower and it's a good one to have but it's it takes time to develop <laughs> it takes time to heal and understand and and for some, sure and you know. There's a level of selfishness that I think that makes the superpower even more powerful where, where when you do something stupid or when your trauma rears its ugly head and you think, God, I wish people would understand why I reacted the way I did or why I said what I said and I'm embarrassed for it and I wish I hadn't said it, but maybe if they just knew why it wouldn't be as severe, it wouldn't be as awkward. Take that out into the world. And when someone's a dick to you at the post office, think about that. Like, yeah. what trauma are they going through? What trauma are they getting through? Um, so, like, I will never understand why the person did what he did to me. But with that same token, I will never understand why anyone out in the world is doing anything they're doing. So the best that I can do with my privilege of perspective is give them the benefit of the doubt and maybe talk to them about it and help them, uh, you know? Yeah. It sounds hippie, but it's the right, <laughs> <laughs> it's the right answer. <laughs> Just be a better person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like allow other people to be reactive and be stupid and say stupid things because you don't know what they're dealing with. And that's so trite, but it's trite because it's true. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Anything else you want to say while we're talking? I don't know. I think when you experience a trauma and you go through your really ugly dark phase and then you come out and see the light again and start living your normal life, uh, you, you have two options. You can leave it behind or you can use it as a tool. And I think you are doing yourself and everyone else who's going to or has experienced what you've experienced a huge disservice yeah. if you don't use it as a tool. Um, and I think, and you know, I'm not saving the world doing my podcast, but I like to think that I'm giving people perspective and doing it in a way where I'm not shoving it down their throats. I'm presenting stories that maybe you haven't heard or never 
considered existed. And even if it's a, a small thing, take what's happened to you and make the world a better place. And that is super hippy-dippy as I'm saying it, but I stand by it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank Josh profusely. It was so much fun talking with him, both in person and over the interwebs. Uh, please check out his podcast. They're super enlightening. I know you guys will love them. And I have some future podcast guests that I know you guys will be excited about and look forward to. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.